Well, it's good to see you this morning. Um, I know many of you remember uh, Tom Schrader. He was the founding pastor of this church back in 1991, originally named East Valley Bible Church. Every year around this time, Tom would preach a message entitled, How to Make the Upcoming Year the Best Year of Your Life. Well, like everything that Tom taught, it was absolutely brilliant, so I have no desire to try to duplicate that message. However, I would like to speak to you today about a, a different kind of New Year's resolution. That is, how we can, in 2021, accept the challenge from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, how can we make 2021 a year in which we can grow spiritually even if it continues to be a challenging time? In order to see that that's possible, we're going to do a brief survey of the life and experiences of the patriarch Abraham from the book of Genesis, the, the first book of the Bible. Abraham lived about 4,000 years ago. He's a man to whom the three great religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, over three billion people, look to as the father of their faith. So we're going to focus on a couple of stories in Genesis chapter 12 through 14 that will give us some clues to Abraham's growing faith, and they can be examples to us in how we can make 2021 a year of spiritual growth, regardless of the circumstances. Now, Abraham's name means father of multitudes, which makes sense. He was originally named by his parents, Abram, which means exalted father, which didn't really make so much sense because until he was 86 years old, he was married to a, a barren woman and had no children. But God knew what he was doing uh, when he changed his name, now that three billion of us look to him as the father of our faith. Well, he was born in a city called Ur in present-day Iraq. He um, was living in this pagan culture, and at some point in his adult life, God spoke to him and said to him, I want you to leave your home and your family and go to a place I'll show you. So Abram picked up, and as God had said, he left the city of Ur. However, he took his father and his nephew Lot with him, rather than do as God instructed to leave his family. He also stopped for quite a long time in a city called Haran, on his way to the place that God was showing him. Well, after many years in Haran, his father passed away. So Abraham, at the age of 75, 
finally took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, left Haran, and headed to the land that God would show him, which we know is the land of Israel today. Well, soon after he arrived, exactly where God told him to go, a great step of faith, there was a famine in the land. That's the way God works most effectively in his people's lives. Even after taking a great step of faith, after we trust God, he brings another test immediately into our life. And he does it because he wants us to keep growing. He's, he's always worked with his people that way from the very beginning of his relationship with the nation of Israel all the way up to how he works with us today. So I want you to take a look at the... We're going to put the verses up on the screen because there's going to be a lot of uh, scripture today. Uh, you can jump around if you want, but it'll be on the screen. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 16. These are God's words to the people of Israel as his relationship with them is beginning. He says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end to humble you and to test you, to do you good in the end. And then in, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus' brother James uh, said a very similar thing this way in chapter 1, verses, beginning in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, in, in challenging times like we faced in, in 2020, the key to growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to see the challenges that we face, those that God causes or allows in our lives not as obstacles to our spiritual development, but as opportunities for our faith in God to be stretched, for our trust in his plans and purposes to grow. That's step number one. See these challenges and tests, not as obstacles, but as opportunities. Unfortunately, at this point in uh, Abram's spiritual journey, he, he didn't see the famine that way. So, so rather than waiting in the place that God had sent him and, and accept the challenge to watch God provide even in the midst of a famine, he decided to leave the promised land and go to Egypt to escape the famine. Now, on, on his way, he recognized that because his wife was very beautiful and much younger than she looked, 
there'd be a good chance that when Pharaoh heard about her, he would want her into his harem. So Abram, he hatched a scheme. He said, I'm going to deceive Pharaoh. I'm going to tell her that she's my sister so that if he decides to take her into his harem, he, he won't have to kill me. Well, the plan worked beautifully. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 16, we'll see. And for her sake, meaning Sarah, he, meaning Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That was the dowry that he had given to Sarah's brother so that she could come into his harem. However, although Abram was not that interested in protecting Sarah, God certainly was. So his displeasure for Abram's scheme landed directly on unsuspecting Pharaoh. Listen to the rest of these next three verses and how God dealt with Pharaoh in chapter 12, verses 17 through 20. Okay, I'll just read them. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her into, for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So off they go, back to the land of Israel, significantly enriched by all of Pharaoh's goods. So much so that when they get back to the land, Abram and Lot realize they've got too much to be able to operate together. And in order to keep peace, they needed to split up. So Abram, although he was the elder and had the right to choose first, he allows Lot to choose. Look around the land, take whatever you want. Lot looks around and, and sees the lush land around Sodom and Gomorrah, beautiful grazing land for all his flocks. And even though it was beyond the land that God had sent them to, Lot chooses to go and settle outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, not long after he gets there, in the very first war recorded in the Bible, Lot and his family are taken captive by a contingent of armies uh, from the Northeast. So Abram doesn't even know about that. Someone comes who escaped that battle and tells him, as soon as he hears, Abram gathers 318 of his trained men and takes off after these four kings. Although he's severely outnumbered, he defeats those armies, he takes Lot and his family and all the spoils that were captured, and they head back to the promised land once again. Now, this brings us to chapter 14, and that's where we're going to look at, uh, in detail at another story um, from Abraham's life. And it's, it's actually a, a very dangerous time for Abraham because of the great victory and the adulation that he would receive as a result of that. Um, it, it's, it's like when, when we're feeling on top of the world. We, we just had some kind of a, a great victory, something that 
helped us achieve a goal or some reason that we're feeling so excited and good about ourselves. It's a time that it's easy to think too highly of ourselves. So in order to keep us humble, God might bring another test in order to remind us that he's the one that gives the victory. And, and that's exactly what he does here. But this time, Abraham demonstrates that his, his faith is, is beginning to grow. Let me read for you uh, from chapter 14, verses uh, 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Kerdelioma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So, we're introduced to two more kings. Uh, the king of Sodom. Um, we don't know exactly what the word Sodom means, but we know what it represents. And um, the word Bera is what his name is. The king of Sodom is named Bera. Uh, that sounds like the, he the Hebrew word for evil. So you have, the you have this king representing an evil place with a name that means evil. He's the first one that comes to, to greet Abram on his return from the battle. And then there's this very mysterious king who comes to meet him, and his name is Melchizedek, and he's the king of Salem. Well, we know what Salem means. It is the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Bera, the king of evil, Melchizedek, the king of peace. Now further, Melchizedek's name, Melech in Hebrew, is the word for king. Tzedek is the word for righteousness. This king of Salem is also the king of righteousness. And then in the book of Hebrews, we fill in a little bit more details of who this man is. The book of Hebrews, it says that Melchizedek had no father and no mother. He had no beginning and no end. Let me see. King of peace, king of righteousness, no beginning, no end, no father, no mother. This is a theophany. This is an appearance of the second person of the Trinity prior to the incarnation. This is God himself coming to meet Abraham after this great victory. And now Abraham finds himself right where we find ourselves so much of the time in our lives, stuck right between the pull of culture, this king of Bera, this king of Sodom, Bera, and the gentle nudge of the Spirit of God, represented by Melchizedek. It, it's kind of like that cartoon, you know, when you, you, got, uh, you got this angel sitting on one side and you got this uh, demon sitting on the other side, and both of them are trying to convince you to follow them. Uh, another way to look at it is if we have, we have two animals inside us that are always battling, always trying to pull us in one direction. And you know who wins? The one who feed, we feed more. And that's what happens here with Abraham. He goes to Melchizedek first. He spends time with Melchizedek first. He even shares communion. Melchizedek brings bread and wine with him. He's refreshed and strengthened by being in the presence of God. He's prepared. When the king of Sodom comes making his demands 
as if he still owned all the spoils, as if there needed to be now some kind of partnership between he and Abraham. But you know what? He deserved nothing because to the victor goes the spoils. How Abraham resists the temptation to take those spoils and not be connected with bearer is, is the next clue on how we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me read for you uh, verses 22 through 24. Uh, starting, I'm sorry, starting 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, so that I would not take a thread or a sandal or a strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Did you notice that he is repeating the exact words that Melchizedek used when he first saw Abram in verse 19. He repeats the word of God. That is the next clue to our growth in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Knowing and understanding and saturating ourselves with the word of God. That's how we resist temptation. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is sharper, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. King David, writing a beautiful psalm about the word of God in Psalm 19, says it this way. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, pure, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The Apostle Paul, in writing to, to Timothy in, this, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16 and 17, he says it this way. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossia. In Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Greek word there uh, for dwell richly literally means to be at home in. It means the place that you're most comfortable. It's why Dorothy needed her slippers and E.T. needed a phone. <laughs> Our home is the place where we're most comfortable, where we're most familiar. When I was a kid, we, 
uh, when one of my friend's parents would be out of town, um, we would play a, a hide-and-seek game in the dark. They'd shut off all the lights, we'd block off all the windows, we'd move the furniture around, you had to crawl around, and you played hide-and-go-seek. Well, invariably, the guy whose house it was always won, because even in the dark, he knew where to go. When we are experiencing the darkness of this world all around us, if we want light, we need to go to the Word of God to illuminate that darkness around us, and we can see where it is that God wants us to go. The first clue in growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to saturate our hearts and our minds with the Word of God. The next key to our growth um, is found in, in Abraham's refusal of the offer itself. Remember years earlier in Egypt, Abram had no problem receiving wealth from Pharaoh, even though it came from a pagan king, and it was the result of his sinfully deceptive plan. But now we see growth. Now, after seeing God give him a miraculous victory, Abraham believed he could trust God to provide, and he wasn't willing to take a single thing from the pagan king. Abraham's resistance to Berah also can't be separated from his time spent with Melchizedek. Before he could acknowledge that he owed no debt to this pagan king, he first acknowledged that he had a debt to God by giving a tenth of all the spoils to Melchizedek. In fact, by giving a tithe to Melchizedek and refusing the king of Sodom's offer, he shows both that he is willing to give to God rather than to receive from man, and that he's moved from an attitude of scarcity to an attitude of abundance. Now, an attitude of scarcity says that I live in fear of never having enough for myself. It's very difficult to be a generous giver or to trust God with a mentality of scarcity. While an attitude of abundance recognizes that God owns it all and believes his promise to meet our needs out of his abundance. The mentality of abundance means that we can be generous with our time and our talent and our resources. Uh, Personally, I have to admit that I have operated with a scarcity mentality most of my life. Uh, in my early life, as the oldest child in a single-parent household, uh, we needed strict rationing uh, really just to get by. Uh, and then, uh, at the age of 23, uh, three months after I got married, uh, I ruptured a disc in my back uh, requiring surgery. Uh, we had no insurance. Uh, Kate was a, was a brand new grad from nursing school working nights, and I was out of work for, for three months. Um, in both cases, uh, we were able to kind of make things work. Um, and despite my fear, um, I developed kind of a, a sense of pride in my own ability to get by with limited resources. As we got back on our feet, I was convinced that in order to survive, I had to hold on to every penny. However, when I came to understand 
that all of God's abundant love and grace were available to me in Jesus, I was able to gradually move from an attitude of scarcity to abundance. When I realized it was not about my tight-fisted approach to resources, but instead that God really was Jehovah Jireh, a God who provides, I began to, to, to let go. I began to be willing to give. Now, honestly, it took time, uh, and I'm, I'm still trying to get to that place of uh, joyfully giving generously. Uh, I, I'm still a work in progress, but, but thanks to a wife who always has an attitude of abundance and, and God's faithfulness, I've learned that abundant living that leads to abundant giving is not about how much I have. It's about who is my heart devoted to. You see, with God, it's not about how much we give. It's about where is our heart. Listen to the words of, of the Apostle John in, in 1 John 3.17. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him. You see, when our approach to life has moved from scarcity to abundance, we've grown in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The next key to Abraham's growth uh, was his, his newfound desire and concern for God's glory rather than his own. He recognized that the king of Sodom's offer was an attempt to get some of the glory for himself. Abraham knew that if he kept any of Sodom and Gomorrah's goods, that Bera could say that Abraham prospered because of his generosity, and therefore he could receive some of the glory that was due God. You remember when, when Abraham went to Egypt? All he was concerned about was his own neck. He was even willing to put his wife in danger in order to protect himself. But now, now, because he desired the glory of God above his own wealth and reputation, he refused the offer. Now his success was for God's glory, not for the king of Sodom and not for his own. See, he, he forfeited his right to the spoils because of his desire to receive the glory of God. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we think about our growth and in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is there some right that we need to forfeit in order for God to receive the glory in our lives? Maybe it's, it's the right to hold on to a grudge or, or to withhold forgiveness because you've been hurt so badly. But would you consider that because you have been forgiven so much that you would be willing to let go, forfeit that right, and forgive 
so that God would receive the glory. Maybe, maybe in this crazy pandemic environment, you have um, had your hours cut or you didn't get a, uh, a year-end bonus the way you normally would have or were furloughed for some period of time and, and you're harboring some anger and you're holding on to some anger towards your, your boss or your supervisor. Would you be willing to, to, to forfeit that right to be angry and go in tomorrow or whatever your next day of work is and work hard because you're working for God and for his glory? Would you be willing to, to, to forfeit the right in your marriage or other relationships to just have it about me and be willing to mutually submit to each other so that God would receive the glory? Letting go of, of those rights and humbly submitting ourselves to each other glorifies God. If, like Abraham, we have the desire for God's glory, we truly can overcome the temptation to make everything about ourselves and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we strive to do all things for God's glory, which is exactly what Paul commands us to do in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. The final key uh, to Abraham's growth was, was the absolute nature of his commitment. He refused to hedge his bet or divide his loyalty. He didn't think maybe I'll keep some of the spoils just in case there's another famine. He didn't think, maybe I'll keep some of those weapons that we captured in case those kings decide to come back and, and attack again. In both his verses 23 and 24, he said to Bera, I will take nothing. He made an absolute commitment to trust God and him alone. There was no compromise his heart was no longer divided like it was when he was first called to leave Ur. Remember, God said, leave your family. And Abraham hedged his bet, and he said, well, I'm a little nervous about going by myself. Come on, Dad. Come on, Lot. Let's, let's go together. And I don't know if we can make it all the way. We better stop in Haran. We better make sure we're settled before we go. See, his heart was divided. He was not ready to fully obey God. It's really easy to have divided loyalties. It's really easy to hedge our bets. It's, it's really easy to, to, to partially obey and hold back. But you know what? God wants our whole heart. He wants an undivided heart. He wants our priorities to be him and him alone. He says to us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then God will add all that other stuff to you. In, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, as he's calling the people of Israel back to him, he says to them, return to me with your whole heart. In, in Matthew 6, 24, in Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
We've grown in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we have an undivided heart, fully committed without compromise to follow God. You know, Abraham won a great victory on the battlefield. But in refusing to accept the spoils from the king of Sodom and have a divided heart, he won a more important spiritual victory. Now, Abraham was not perfect. He's going to stumble again. In fact, he's going to do the same thing with his wife. He's going to lie again when he is faced with a, with a, a minor prince in, in Israel uh, by the name of Abimelech. Um, but he's moving in the right direction. He's grown from a brand new stumbling follower of the one true God to one who desires to live with, with his whole heart and follow with his whole heart. You see, for us, it's the same thing. It's, it's not about perfection. We're not going to achieve perfection. It's about direction. Are we committed to move in the direction of growth? Are we willing to look at the obstacles that we are definitely going to face in 2021? I can guarantee you, it's probably not going to be like 2020, but there's going to be obstacles in 2021. Are we willing to look at that as opportunities to grow as followers of Christ? Or are we going to look at those as obstacles and, and turn inward? Are we going to saturate our hearts and our minds with the Word of God? Are we going to take this book and every day digest what God has to say? Not to check off a bunch of boxes that we've done it, but to hear what God has to say to us so that when that darkness starts to move in, we can respond. It is written. Each time that the devil tempted Jesus out in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry in trying to teach him, to, to get him to enrich himself with the world's goods, Jesus responded, it is written. It is written. It is written. We need to saturate our minds and hearts with the word of God. We need to move from an attitude of scarcity to an attitude of abundance. We need to see that God is the one who owns it all and he has promised to provide for us. We need to be willing to be about God's glory and not make things all about us. And we need to have a heart that is fully committed to God. And then, no matter what happens in 2021, it'll be a good year. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We are so grateful that you would care enough about us to bring these trials and tests and challenges into our life so that we would grow, so that we would experience your goodness, so that we could see that you are fully capable, fully able to care for us. I pray, Lord, that this word would be, as David said, sweeter than honey, more valuable than gold, I pray, Lord, that we would see your resources. I pray that we would desire your glory and have hearts that are undivided so that we can be salt and light in the darkness that's ahead. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.